Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today on Stuff to Blow Your Mind, we're going to be uh, starting on an expedition into the history of books. We're, uh, I guess this will be in the spirit of our, our previous show, Invention. We're going to uh, look at an invention. And I, I think the book is probably one of the most underappreciated technologies. Obviously, it's not that people don't appreciate books as things. But when we think about books, I, I think there's a problem that we only appreciate the contents of the books. We only think about them as literature, and we don't think about what a marvelous technology the the modern book is. That's right. Yeah, we, we basically need to, to take a step back uh, here before we really get into the idea of the invention of the book. Uh, books are, in the words of Carl Sagan, a means of storing additional information that exceeds the information-carrying capacity of the brain. And I realize that's, that's kind of uh, a, you know, a simplified version of what they are, uh, but it's also kind of a, a useful uh, overstatement of the obvious. Um, the book is a tool. It is an extension of the human body in the same way that a, a normal tool is. But in this case, it is a more precisely an extension of the human mind. Kind of an external hard drive for the brain. Exactly. Yeah, I think this this is a, an example where our uh, our tendency to use computer metaphors to understand our own minds is you know is actually pretty helpful. But of course, books are more than that too. Books are a way for one author or a group of authors or even a legacy of authors to think their thoughts directly into another person's brain. It's a it's a way of not only storing information but disseminating information. And as such, it's played. The books have played a vital role in the spread of information. Uh, where, for instance, would Western civilization be if not for the influx influx of Arab books into the medieval world? And that's just one example. Oh yeah, but it's, I think it's a fantastic example because it uh, books provide a way for lost knowledge to be reclaimed, even when knowledge mm-hmm. sort of like fades into obscurity within sort of the, the the oral culture of a society, if there is a book that contains that knowledge, that voice, it, and and the book can be found, suddenly all of that past knowledge can return. Yeah. And, and I think your example is a very good one. Now, thinking more about the metaphor of like the external hard drive or the way of storing information outside the carrying capacity of the brain, in some ways, I think that's a really good metaphor. But there are also very important ways that that doesn't quite capture everything that books can do. For example, a book is a very different kind of memory than a memory in the brain is. And I, I would say one of the main issues is that books are fixed physical documents, whereas memories in the brain are not fixed. Memories are always changing. Every time you recall a memory, you probably change it in some way. And while, you know, it, it is possible, of course, to remember things in an accurate way, it is probably not possible to, say, uh, remember the amount of exact numerical figures that we would be recorded in a book list of assets or prices as many you know of the oldest books uh, there are you know many of the oldest books we have are basically trade documents of some kind or to remember the exact wording of a, of an epic poem describing a mythological foundation yeah absolutely you know another take on this that I was reading about uh, I was reading uh, uh, something from Andrew Robinson uh, author of the story of writing and he, he points out that you know just how powerful books are and how how feared books 
often are, particularly by usurpers of power and conquerors who uh, often burn books, uh, oppressive regimes ban books. Uh, you know, they, they are powerful reservoirs of human thought. And, um, and to your point earlier, I mean, they endure in ways that oral histories often cannot. Uh, knowledge can be lost, uh, but then it can be regained through books. Words and the books that contain them, um, they, they, they freeze our thoughts as well uh, in a way that an oral history does not. The myth that it exists within the minds and on the tongues of the people will continue to change, but that which has been recorded uh, you know, uh, retains uh, all of the, uh, you know, the, the curious edges that it had when it was uh, first written down. And you know, uh, I, I don't recall the source on this, but I remember us bringing up this idea of of words and uh, and literature freezing thoughts in the past, you know, that it's taking what is happening in our mind and just and fixing it. Yeah, uh, I think the example of the way myths change over time is is a great one here. Like, I, it calls to mind the recent episodes we did about the evolution of the Medusa myth. You know, the, there's clearly yeah. some kind of oral history mythology feeding into the story that became Medusa and Athena, Medusa and Perseus. But once you have a particular author writing their version of that myth, suddenly that version is a fixed thing that can be referred to, and it's no longer just. Uh, uh, just, you know, an uncountable part of this protean stew of mythology. Now there is like Ovid's version of the Medusa myth. And that, right. that that's a thing you can refer to. Now, of course, it's not the case that books never change. I think especially in the ancient world, one thing that, that's hard for us in the modern world to, to keep in mind is that books in the ancient world had to be copied by hand when they were, you know, spread about. So changes could easily creep in either by mistakes from, you know, scribes doing a sloppy job of copying or just inserting their own little uh, imprimatur on whatever it is they're working on. That that did happen too sometimes, even in, uh, you know, even in very important books like the works of Plato or in the Bible. Um, but there's another interesting thing that... Uh, I think, you know, you, you were talking about the political power of books, the way that like, you know, conquerors and, and, and political leaders often like burn or ban books that scare them. There is a power in written documents um, that, to create a kind of stability in a political sense, right? Because I was thinking about how a lot of the earliest written documents that exist in human history are lists of numerical figures, like, like a record of prices or assets in, in trade mm -hmm. or possession, or lists of laws like Hammurabi's Code. I actually got to see uh, the, the Hammurabi's Code steal in the Louvre recently, and, and, and it made me think there about the significance of having a written law code. Now, we might read the laws in Hammurabi's Code and, and see a lot of brutality and unfairness in there, and I think there is absolutely that kind of thing to find. But you can also appreciate it in a certain way because a, a, having a list of written laws as opposed to sort of rule by the ad hoc pronouncements of a leader does, at least in theory, reduce the amount of caprice in how justice is administered, right? Like a written law code, at least in theory, if it's enforced well, allows you to know what the rules and punishments are in advance rather than just kind of like living in fear of whatever the leader's mood is going to be today. Yeah, you remove sort of the, the whims of the tyrant. And also, I imagine on another level, you kind of remove like... Um, 
uh, like, let's say you weren't even dealing with a tyrant. Let's say you're dealing with just sort of like the the traditions and stories of a people, right? Um, you'd have to like interpret mm. those to get your laws. Uh, but here, no, here are the laws in a list. You can, in many cases, you may be able to, you know, to look at it uh, all at once, all 10 things. You couldn't actually have them all in your head at the same time, but they are all on this stone at the same time. Exactly right. Like it gives you a common foundation that multiple people can refer to. Now, I want to get back to the just the idea of, of, of books here before we inevitably dive back through history again. You know, uh, I was thinking about how every now and then you'll hear somebody joke, uh, uh, say something like, remember books uh, when, <laughs> when contemplating uh, electronic resources such as e-books and Kindles and what have you, um, which, you know, I, I, I get that to a certain extent uh, because I know I've um, I've my and my family have tried to cut down on on clutter books in the home. You know, like how many how many physical books do I actually need? I love books. If left to my own devices, I, I'm sure that I would have a lot of book clutter. But at the end of the day, you know, is this something I'm going to actually look for? Am I going to actually pull it out and uh, and, uh, and and reference it at some point? And or do I have an electronic copy already somewhere else? Right. Well, um, I've noticed in myself, I at least tend to accumulate kind of books of marginal interest. Like I'll mm -hmm. (laughs) end up with books in my house that are things that uh, that I, you know, there's probably a a low likelihood that I'll ever get around to reading them. They're not high on my priorities list and they're just here somehow. Either I got them at work or, you know, that kind of or they just like looked interesting in a used bookstore one time and say, hey, it's 60 cents i'll get it um <laughs> that reminds me of uh, if i'm remembering this correctly um umberto echo had an anecdote about uh, you know umberto echo of course had quite a personal library um mm. i think he had to like reinforce the floor to um to allow him to keep it uh, but <laughs> at some point some like a workman or somebody had come over uh, and they saw all the books and they're like oh have you read all of these and he said no no these are just the ones i plan to read uh, <laughs> which um <laughs> Which I, I see that reflected in some of my own uh, book, you know, collect. you start amassing books and you're like, uh, you know, I haven't read these yet. Uh, I would like to read these. And that's why they're taking up valuable space in my home. Yeah, but, but I still have a lot of books in the house. And and even beyond that, I mean, they're just books everywhere still. Like there, uh, there's a library down the street from where I live. Uh, there are all these lending libraries, you know, so you're just, just traveling from here to the library. There are just books, little boxes, wooden boxes uh, filled with like various old cookbooks and uh, horror and sci-fi books, that sort of thing. And on top of this, our various ebooks, our PDFs, these are still digital extensions of the, the the idea, the concept of the book. You know, they still obey the laws of the codex. And and as such, I think the book will continue to be with us for quite some time. But one of the big questions we're going to be asking in in this uh, episode or episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind is how far back in time would you have to travel, uh, uh, you know, to reach a world in which a book would not be identifiable as what it is. Well, that's interesting because so the most common form of book that we're familiar with today is the is the printed book, you know, the product mm-hmm. of a printing press. But as I was saying earlier, that's actually a fairly recent phenomenon, you know, for much of human history. If you had a book, that sucker had to be made by hand. Absolutely. Now, now certainly the printed book uh, as as we you know know it like generally the first thing coming to your mind when I say book uh, that only goes back as far as the 15th century CE, 
But while the printing press certainly changed the trajectory of the book forever in ways that we'll come back to, these were certainly not the first books. Yeah, they were. Before this, we had we had handwritten books. We had the products of the of you know medieval European scriptoriums. Uh, and so you might think, well, that's the beginning, right? We go back to the scriptorium, and that would be the beginning of the book somewhere in there. But this would also be incorrect. So to to really get to the heart of the book, to the, get to the heart of the Kodak, we have to travel much further back in time. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take a quick break, and then we will begin that journey. All right, we're back. So when we talk about an invention, we like to talk about what what came before, what were the prerequisites of this invention, and what were the forces driving it. Now, when we're talking about a book, this is obviously an invention with many forms. What what counts as a book? Maybe we can talk about that a little bit more as we go on. Most of us, when we say book, we're imagining what in form would be called like a codex, right? It's bound, it has pages that face in from either side and then are joined at a spine, and you can flip through the pages and read them. Uh, But, you know, there are other ways of thinking about books, and all of these are, no matter what their form, going to trace back to the original invention of written language. Yes, and and this in and of itself stands as one of the greatest inventions uh, that that humans have wrought. Uh, Writing systems themselves seem to emerge out of the fourth millennium BCE in Mesopotamia. So uh, just to throw out some dates here – you know, in, in Egypt, we're talking about uh, 3100 BCE. In the Indus Valley, we're talking about 2500 BCE. In Crete, 1750 BCE. In China, 1200 BCE. And in Central America, 500 BCE. And so are those different dates you're giving, are those believed to be um, parts along a spreading evolution of language or independent inventions of written language? Well, uh, it's interesting. I was reading about this, and apparently some scholars believe writing may have spread from culture to culture, but the majority seem to see it as a situation of independent invention in the various major civilizations of the ancient world and and beyond the ancient world, uh, as it becomes increasingly important to record trade data, laws, histories, and more. Coming back again to, you know, why do we turn to uh, the written word? Why do we turn to uh, keeping records of things. So that's where it begins. It's not the composition of poetry. Uh, It's not the the taking our oral histories and putting them down in a solid form. It's it's initially about the data, about the laws. You know, in a way, it's it's like it begins with computing, right? Yeah, I think, well, what we were talking about earlier, like fixing points of information for future reference so that you can either know, you know, know something that is beyond your ability to remember in a stable way just within your own brain, or so that you can, you and multiple other people can all be able to point to the same thing and, and, and be agreed because it's written in the text. Of course, the thing with writing is you have to, you have to put it on something, right? Uh, right. You know, if I take a note about what I need to get at the grocery store and I put it on, say, um, you know, a post-it note, great, I have a note, but that's, that's, that's not a book. Uh, that, I can't really make an argument that that's a book, not unless I do some serious folding. Right. And post-it notes did not exist in the ancient world. Most of the oldest known written documents of any significant length uh, that that still exist today are printed on solid, hard, often heavy surfaces by carving or relief. Uh, and so a great example would be one thing I already mentioned, the Code of Hammurabi, dated to around 1750 BCE. This is a law code from ancient Mesopotamia. Uh, there was one law I was just looking at uh, in it that I thought was very interesting and related to a recent episode. Uh, 
Uh, I believe this is law number 127 of Hammurabi's Code. If anyone point the finger at a sister of a god or the wife of anyone and cannot prove it, this man shall be taken before the judges and his brow shall be marked. And the way scholars interpret that idea of pointing the finger is as slander, I believe. Mm. Interesting. But but here we get in one of our earliest uh, known law codes, like the the idea that pointing the finger is a very dangerous act and it deserves judicial remedy. Um, but so the Code of Hammurabi <laughs> is 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 carved on what's known as a steel. This is like a, a large block that uh, cannot be easily transported for one from one place to another. It's not like a book you can put in your pocket or sack or carry away. You can't store it in a compact way. It's this huge stone, and uh, so a steel was often an official decree or some kind of public document. They would be meant for display, display to onlookers, often bound to a particular place and the contents that are displayed on a steel often bear out this usage so contents you might find would be laws tomb or grave markers one example i really like is is a boundary steel we've talked about this in previous episodes i believe where you might have um in the ancient near east there'd be like a marker at the edge of somebody's property and it might just contain a list of statements on it like this property here belongs to so and so you can't come on the property. If you come on the property, the gods will pluck out your eyes. If you come on the property, you know, and then it just like list after, you know, list item after list item of all these like curses that will befall you if you violate this, uh, this, this property restriction. Yeah, it's, it's a wonderful idea. We need to bring it back. Uh, but, uh, that, uh, <laughs> I'll put one of those in my yard. <laughs> uh, yeah. The, if you come on this property without a mask, um, the gods shall smite you. Um, <laughs> the, um, the, uh, that episode was, uh, I think we just titled it The Curse, and it was an October publication. Uh, mm-hmm. And there's a lot of interesting stuff in that. I remember going into some uh, uses of the curse in, um, in Chinese carpentry. Uh, oh, so there's, yes, there's some yes. fun examples. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, but so th- th- these types of, you know, writing substrates are, are things that are going to be big, fixed, usually meant to stay in one place and say something that has to do with that particular place. Another example would be uh, some of these ancient uh, steel uh I don't know what the plural is, actually. I should know the steely, steli, stella, whatever it is. Um, they will, like, list the exploits of a mighty king and say, like, all the people that he conquered and all the heads that he smashed. Yeah, it's such an amazing concept when you really think about it, because it's not just writing down information. Like, these large-scale uh, examples of this are you're taking uh, you're taking this knowledge, you're taking this history or this interpretation of history or propaganda, however you want to uh, phrase it, and you're, 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 you're printing it on the world. You're making it part of the environment. Yeah, totally. Uh, and so I think we should make a distinction here. While I think these early you know, written documents that are carved on large stones and, and, you know, whatever you want to call the steel tradition. I don't think that's a book, probably. I, I think for something to qualify as a book, it really needs to include an element of compactness and portability. I, I think it needs to be something that could reasonably be carried from one place to another and could reasonably be stored in multiples within a building or a home. That's a fancy way of saying, um, could you kill a bug with it? Like, if you could not kill a bug with it, I'm not sure it's a book in any uh, in any way, shape, or form. I like your definition better. 
So let's dive down a little deeper um, in, in determining what is and what isn't a book. Uh, I, I, of course, turn to uh, a book that I uh, uh, love to dive into anytime we, we start looking at an ancient invention. That is The 70 Great Inventions of the Ancient World, edited by Brian Fagan. Um, and the contributor uh, in this book uh, for the chapters dealing with writing and encryption and the history of books uh, is an individual uh, that I already mentioned by the name of Andrew Robinson, who wrote The Story of Writing, Lost Languages, and The Man Who Deciphered Linear B. So I want to read an excerpt from Robinson's work in uh, The 70 Great Inventions of the Ancient World. Quote, There is nothing in the concept of the book that requires it to consist of pages, with text printed or written on paper, still less sewn or glued together between cardboard covers like present-day examples. A cache of Babylon clay tablets, an Egyptian papyrus roll, a vellum codex from medieval Europe, a folding Maya codex with jaguar skin covers from Central America, a microfilm, and an electronic book all qualify as books as much as printed paper volume. And uh, this, I, when I was reading this, I, it instantly brought to mind the concept of a physical book as presented in Frank Herbert's Dune, uh, which, of course, takes place in the far future of humanity. Uh, I don't know if you remember this, Joe, but there's this concept of, of first of all, film books, which are described as shigawire imprints used in training and carrying a mnemonic pulse. <laughs> Well, that clears it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ignore that part, but because there's also mention of an old-fashioned book, but uh, with a futuristic twist. It's an old orange Catholic Bible that a character uh, gives to another, and it's made for space travelers, uh, we're told. It's printed on filament paper that you can't actually touch. It has its own magnifier, and it has a, an electrostatic charge system. So the charge holds the book closed, forcing against spring-locked covers, we're told. You press the edge of the book, and the selected pages open. The magnifier slides into place, and you can move it ahead page by page in this fashion, fashion without ever touching these like super delicate pages. Uh, and I remember reading that for the first time as a kid and just being like blown away by this, this idea of this this tiny little uh, space Bible uh, that has its own magnifier and it's, um, you know, mm-hmm. it's using this electric electrostatic charge system to turn the tiny little pages. So it's kind of like a combination of a, a book and a microfiche, but it's like, yeah. it's got its own reading apparatus. Exactly. Yeah. But I want to come back to what Robinson was talking about. He's, he's sort of rolling out what he sees as the, the criteria for calling something a book. Quote, they are all made for public circulation enjoy a considerable degree of permanence, and are relatively portable, compared, say, to a monumental inscription. Through their different media, they are all capable of knowledge transmission transcending space and time. Of course, printing with movable type, which was invented much later than the book, vastly increases its potential readership, but it does not define the concept. Well, there's something he kind of hints at in the last sentence there, uh, which which I find interesting, which is the idea of a possible link between the mass production of books and and people's ability to read books. Because another thing, you know, we, we talked about how for most of human history, books were not mass produced. They had to be copied by hand. They were precious and rare things that were difficult to make. Um, and so, you know, it, obviously the only people who could afford to have them would be like institutions or very rich people or monasteries, that kind of thing. But also, you know, for most of human history, most people have been illiterate. It's only really in the past couple of centuries that that widespread public literacy has been a goal. Absolutely. Yeah. So you have to ask yourself, I mean, obviously, 
a book that cannot be read is still, for the most part, a book, but uh, by some definitions, maybe not. Like, for instance, we discussed the Volnich Manuscript uh, in the past uh, on the show, you know, and its uh, unreadable nature uh, that continues to uh, uh, intrigue and confuse us, you know. Uh, if, if the book cannot convey information, if the, bo- if the book is mute, uh, you know, what does that say? It's, it, I, I feel similar ways about, say, like if Wu-Tang puts out an album that, nobody, that only one person can listen to, or John Malkovich makes a film that nobody can watch for 100 years. <laughs> like, is that really an album? Is that really a movie? Because, um, you know, this is like a communication has to take place for this to really be media in, in, certain, in certain respects. Yeah, I agree. It's uh, an interesting way of thinking about it. Uh, so uh, Robinson goes on to just briefly outline some of the, the, the core examples of, of early things that we could, we could say were books. Uh, so the two earliest contenders that he highlights, first of all, Mesopotamian clay tablets. These would be handwritten, uh, cuneiform script inscribed in clay with a reed and then baked. And then uh, the other one uh, that's uh, this one of the, the two contenders here is Egyptian papyrus rolls written in ink with a brush. The papyrus itself, uh, this was this was made from sheets uh, that were made from the papyrus plant. So stripped, sliced, overlapped in layers of pith, pressed and then allowed to dry. And I'll come back to this one in more detail in a bit. However, uh, three other uh, innovations that are worth highlighting. Uh, Chinese bamboo and wooden slips bound together with cords. Uh, this basically constitutes the idea of a book. And, of course, the Chinese would, have, would go on to invent paper itself in 105 CE. And from there, it would spread through East Asia, though it would be nearly a thousand years before Europe followed suit. You also have Mediterranean writing tablets. These would be consist of one to ten pieces of wood bound together by a clasp or hinge or alternatively by a cord strung through holes around the, along the edges. And then you also have uh, Greek and Roman wax writing tablets. Uh, and of course, they also use papyrus and parchment rolls as well. And of course, all of these examples of what we might call books uh, were leading up to what we refer to as the codex, in which a number of sheets of parchment are bound together with writing on both sides of each sheet. Yeah, and it's really the codex, I think, that is the first thing that we recognize as is morphologically the same as the modern books that we have, despite changes in materials and stuff. The codex is what you're thinking of when you think of a book. It folds, it has pages, you leaf through the pages to read. Exactly. So I was reading an excellent brief overview of the history of things leading up to the Codex in a a book called The Book, The Life Story of a Technology by Nicole Howard. Uh, I think this was released at some point through Johns Hopkins University Press. Um, But but Howard's overview is interesting. So she mentioned some of the same things you're talking about, of course, that, you know, in – in the early archaeological record of written documents, hard surfaces rule the day. And of course, these would include like the steel that we mentioned before uh, and the, you know, the Mesopotamian clay tablets, the what the Assyrians, the Babylonians used to preserve written information and, you know, making indents on clay tablets, but also things like wood and bone. She also mentioned several other substrates that I thought were interesting as, uh, as surfaces for writing on, including ivory, tortoise shell, linen, 
palm leaves and what's called bast fiber, which is a tough fiber from the vascular tissue of some plant species, uh, which is often used to make things like rope or matting. And, and she identifies the most direct ancestor to the modern hardware of a book, a bound book with pages, as what emerges in northern Africa around 2600 BCE. I've, I've read some other estimates putting it earlier, around 3000 or 3100 BCE. We don't know exactly, but of course, whenever it did emerge, this was papyrus. And it's time to sound the alarm. We got it. We got a plenty of the elder alert. Are you ready for some Pliny? Yeah, yeah. Let's let's touch in with Pliny the elder uh, for a little history here. But first, we should probably take one more break. Oh, okay. We're gonna we're gonna jump out, but then we'll be right back in with Pliny. All right, we're back. Uh, so we're jumping in with Pliny the Elder and his description of the ancient papyrus industry. Uh, so Pliny the Elder, of course, was a first century Roman military officer and author, encyclopedist, uh, president of the Lead Acetate fan club, of course. He he wrote at length about what he believed uh, on the history and production of papyrus. And this would be uh, – I'm, I'm going to read a section here from the Bostock and Riley translation of Pliny's Natural History, which is his his big encyclopedia. It's got, it's got all the information you'll ever need. Uh, so Pliny writes, We have not as yet taken any notice of the marsh plants, nor yet of the shrubs that grow upon the banks of rivers. Before quitting Egypt, however, we must make some mention of the nature of the papyrus, seeing that all the usages of civilized life depend in such a remarkable degree upon the employment of paper, at all events, the remembrance of past events. Um, so, and so he's he's talking about the the translation there uses the word paper. Of course, this is not exactly what we'll talk about when we get into the Chinese paper making tradition. This is papyrus, a slightly different thing, though it's sort of paper like. Uh, he calls papyrus that commodity by which immortality is insured to man. So Pliny's ranking papyrus up there as like one of the most important inventions in Roman civilization. He's like, hey, without papyrus, basically like we, we couldn't have a civilization. We couldn't have remembrance of things past. Mm. So he goes on to introduce the plant by saying, quote, papyrus grows either in the marshes of Egypt or in the sluggish waters of the river Nile when they have overflowed and are lying stagnant in pools that do not exceed a couple of cubits in depth. The root lies obliquely and is about the thickness of one's arm. The section of the stalk is triangular and it tapers gracefully upwards toward the extremity, being not more than 10 cubits at most in height. And then Pliny goes on to explain the way that papyrus was made. Uh, this is coming sort of from Howard's summary. Basically, you would you would cut the plant into segments, and you would remove this outer green rind to access the pith inside, which is this pulpy substance. It's made primarily of cellulose. Cellulose, of course, is fiber. And then the pith would be laid out in these long, thin strips on a damp table or board and hammered flat side by side to form these single-layer sheets. And then a second layer of strips was laid flat perpendicular to the first sheet and then also pounded or pressed flat. 
And uh, Pliny claims that these perpendicular sheets were, quote, moistened with Nile water, a liquid which, when in a muddy state, has the peculiar qualities of glue. Hmm. Now, Howard mentions that uh, modern scholars do not think Nile water was actually used as a glue here. Instead, they think that uh, the glue would just be a natural property of these plant fibers. There would be a sap in the reed, and that sap would bind the sheets together once they had been pounded or pressed uh, in a perpendicular fashion. Yes, yeah, so Robinson uh, uh, writes this as well, uh, that it's the, the naturally occurring sap. Yeah. But either way, you would then dry the sheets. And so an individual sheet of papyrus might be small. It just might be, you know, around 12 inches in height. But what you could do is glue sheets together at the edges. And then once you've attached a bunch of papyrus sheets together, they can be rolled up into scrolls. And scrolls, of course, are a, uh, an important book technology that precedes the codex. And we can explore that more as we go forward. Um, but Howard points out an interesting side effect of the production process. She says that by hammering the strips together in this perpendicular fashion, this was actually important because it would allow you to, to get a much more durable material, right? The paper will be flexible. It'll be fairly tough, you know, because you've got this crossing here. But also as a side effect, you'd get one side of the papyrus sheet with natural fibers running top to bottom, while the other side would have fibers running horizontally, and this has practical implications for writing. The side with the fibers running horizontally was fairly easy to write on. You know, think about like lined note paper, right? But the side with the fibers running vertically was often considered unfit for writing. It was difficult to write on. And a lot of archaeologists have found that in the ancient world, a lot of people just didn't write on this side of the page, which is very interesting because – you know, when you consider writing material as a relatively precious commodity compared to how, you know, cheap and easily accessible paper is today. Yeah, I don't, it's almost like they were natural. Um, I, I find with children, it's similar. Like you have to remind them, hey, uh, the printer paper doesn't grow on trees. Uh, so please use the back of the printer paper <laughs> when you were, you know, sketching monsters and, uh, and whatnot. <laughs> uh, but because uh -huh. their natural instinct seems to be just to, to do the front and just leave it at that. I don't know. But no, my marker bleeds through. I need to have, you know, clean <laughs> monsters on either side. Yeah. Um, we, we may come back to this in a bit, but I'm remind earlier I mentioned how like our, our e-books are essentially the codex, uh, uh, you know, in, in, a, in e form. Uh, but of course, uh, I, I should probably add this because I know a lot of people may have, may have been thinking this as well. You know, it depends on how you have your set your viewing settings uh, in place. For instance, yes, the notes yes. that we are using here, uh, I've uh, uh, mine are currently in a PDF form. So I'm reading it in Adobe Acrobat uh, Pro. And uh, currently mm -hmm. it is scrolling. Now, there is a separation between pages. So it's like I have scrolling pages. However, if I go to my view settings, I can change that. I can remove the space between the pages and turn it into essentially a digital scroll. Um, instead, I'm doing mm -hmm. something that is, is, I think, ultimately more like a codex. Uh, and you can even, you know, of course, do things where you have like opposing pages and all as well. So I don't know. Maybe we, we are living in, a, in an age where... Um, uh, there's maybe a preference for the codex, uh, but we certainly have scroll-like uh, options uh, available to us as well. Yeah, uh, I, I see what you're talking about. I mean, this isn't the first time I've heard this, actually. I, I remember many years ago watching some interview where um, – the literary scholar Harold Bloom was in a in a you know 
characteristically grumpy fashion, lamenting the rise of the idea of ebooks. He he just seemed to hate this idea, and he he with the way he described it was like two thousand years after we made the transition to the codex. Finally, we are transitioning back to the scroll, uh, and he thought this was just awful. Not saying I necessarily agree with that sentiment, though. There is something about like scrolling down to read an article, say, on a website that I don't really like as a reading format. Like, it it Mm -hmm. is more pleasant to have the same article in a format where you can just turn the pages. I like the sequential nature of page turning. Yeah. Um, there's something, I mean, maybe it's just too elementary, you know, that it feels like I'm, 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 I'm taking care of a task one after the other, one page at a time, uh, mm-hmm. in a way where uh, an endless scroll might seem intimidating. I don't know. Uh, or maybe it's just this is what I'm used to and this is what I like to do. Because like um, when I'm using my Kindle, there's certainly more of a feeling of side to side, page to page. And, you know, you would even have some sort of a page count up there as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Uh, okay, so interesting side fact Pliny notes here. He, Pliny starts describing a bunch of different kinds of paper. He's like, nah, now I will tell you about the nine different kinds of papyrus. Uh, <laughs> thanks, Pliny. But he, he mentions one kind. He's talking about the Egyptians describing this um, high-quality white papyrus as what's called hieratic, or uh, this is sometimes translated as holy paper, since it was reserved entirely for the use of religious books. And the footnote in the Bostock and Riley translation of the Natural History says, quote, the priests would not allow it to be sold lest it might be used for profane writing. But after it was once written upon, it was easily procurable. The Romans were in the habit of purchasing it largely in the latter state and then washing off the writing and using it as paper of the finest quality. Hence, it received the name of Augustus as representing in Latin its Greek name Hieraticus or sacred. In the length of time, it became a common impression, as here mentioned, that that this name was given in honor of Augustus Caesar. Hmm. But I, I think that first part's interesting. So, like, if the if their characterization is correct here, that, like, certain kinds of papyrus were guarded in a material sense and regarded as holy because they would be used at some point to write holy scripture on, not because anything had been written on them yet. But then once something had already been written on them, then it was no longer sacred, and then you could easily just get it and, I guess, wash off the holy scripture and write whatever you wanted on it. Oh, wow, that's interesting. Uh, that reminds me of the, I think it was a two-part episode, maybe it's just a one-part that it did with, did with Christian back in the day on the idea of grimoires, of, mm-hmm. you know, books that end up taking on sacred qualities, uh, you know, generally because of the sacred contents that they have. Um, it, there was, I remember there being one, um, uh, we were talking about a, a cache of uh, Qurans that had been discovered. And, uh, and and part of the issue was is like these books, these holy books, had been used and reused to the point where they were kind of falling apart. They weren't really usable anymore. They weren't presentable, but they were also sacred, so they couldn't be destroyed. So they were kind of walled away in in a building, and then they were hmm. discovered much later. And I, I, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, you know, they gave us some of the oldest examples of the Quran um, that we have been able to uh, uh, you know to to acquire. Uh, so, yeah, when you start getting into the idea of, of sacred information put onto a material, uh, a material that may itself be considered sacred, uh, yeah, everything gets, gets very complicated. 
Yeah, that is interesting. Like the 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 conceptual contagion that the the sacredness of the content of what's written on the the paper or the papyrus or the ink or whatever eventually extends by contagion to the physical form itself. It's not just that what is written in here is holy, but like the actual physical book is holy. This is such a weird concept. Like th- th- it seems like the kind of thing that might be utilized by like an artist. Like what if you had what if you had a Bible, okay, like a, a, a you know a Catholic Bible, and okay. you found out that it was made from 100% from paper that had been recycled from pornography? Um, like what? How would how would we <laughs> deal? Like, I don't think we would particularly like it would be a weird thing to focus on today. Uh-huh. Uh, it would also be weird that you were you know making it exclusively from pornography recyclings, but. Um, but would that even would that begin to sort of creep into our idea of um, of, of contagion that like the that this is this this book is uh, is profane it's some sort of a, a blasphemy because you made it on such recycled material? I feel like a lot of modern religious people would probably would probably house the distinction in the intent of the person who made it. So it'd be like, True. did you know you were making making it out of this recycled paper or not? Like it. I think most people today, like if they found that out, but they knew it was just recycled paper and the person had no intention of making that particular transition, they wouldn't care. But they might get annoyed at the idea that someone did this on purpose. Right. Like if it were in a museum in New York City or something. Yeah. Um, But then again, imagine this. I can easily see somebody, say like a a televangelist, marketing their own Bible that they can 100% guarantee is not made using recycled pornography. People would be (laughs) like, yes, how have I been using an impure Bible this whole time? There might be some pornography in there. Right. Well, I mean, if you got somebody who's good at selling it, they'll be good at selling it. Yeah. Okay. So I guess... To get back to papyrus, uh, so how, how was papyrus written on? Well, uh, Howard mentions that the ancient Egyptians would write on papyrus using reeds or quills, often dipped in an ink made out of charcoal diluted in water. Uh, and again, a reminder at this time, we, we've mentioned this, but if you wanted a copy of a book at this time, it had to be written out by hand. You could mm-hmm. not get it from a printing press. And uh, Howard mentions that scribes in ancient Egypt would copy scrolls either by sight. So you just have one copy of a book on you know one part of your desk and another a blank scroll on the other part, and you just copy it out by hand. Or you'd have a book read aloud, and you'd have to copy it down from dictation, which sounds even harder. But this was a slow and laborious process, not just for the obvious reasons you might imagine. It would also be slow and laborious to copy a book in this way because there were also mechanical limitations. Like you had to wait for the ink to dry as you're going and there's no backspace key if you make a mistake and so forth. But papyrus made out of the uh, the reed, the, the cypress papyrus plant, it was a major industry supplying writing material to the broader Mediterranean world. Uh, but, but Howard identifies an interesting shift, and it begins especially around the first century. There's, there's some elements of this shift in earlier centuries, but it really gets going around the first century that there's this long-running major shift from papyrus to parchment for writing material. Now, why this shift? Well, one explanation given by historians is a basic shortage of supply. Again, papyrus writing material had to be made of this specific plant, the reed Cyperus papyrus. And if there was a sudden scarcity of the reed, that would mean a scarcity of the writing material for export. But Howard also mentions 
that there were sort of pressures put on Egypt by military incursions in the previous centuries. And so whatever the cause of the dwindling supply of exported papyrus, around the first century, bookmaking peoples elsewhere in the Mediterranean were really were really starting to seek out an alternative, which they found in parchment and vellum. Now, what are these substances? Basically, think like paper made out of treated animal skins. Parchment is made from untanned sheep leather, and vellum is made from calf skin. So to treat these animal skins uh, for use as writing surfaces, first, of course, you had to clean them. You had to get all the biological gunk off, you know, all the hair and stuff. Uh, and then they would uh, they would clean the smooth surface with applications of pumice and lime. And Howard points out that this was a difficult process since the animal skin had to be stretched and dried at the same time. So the goal was to stretch it out in such a way that it wouldn't contract back to its original shape once it was finished drying. And there are actually several ways that parchment and vellum proved superior to papyrus as a writing material. One way is that they can be made pretty much anywhere. Papyrus was dependent on Egypt. It was dependent on this Egyptian industry, especially since it was made from a reed native to the Nile Delta area. Though I think there were papyrus or papyrus-like products also made from some of the Mesopotamian empires based on reed plants from the Tigris and Euphrates. I don't know if it was the same species of plant, but it seems primarily papyrus was coming from Egypt. Uh, but nevertheless, the ancient Romans were, were generally dependent on Egyptian papyrus for their needs. Meanwhile, sheep and calves, they could be pretty much anywhere. They were raised pretty much anywhere. So you could always make parchment or vellum locally. And Howard doesn't mention this, but I've read in other sources that the, the process of making papyrus writing material was also a closely guarded industrial secret. And I kind of wonder if this might also have proved important in its decline. Yeah, if it, it, ultimately, you just need an alternative to that uh, uh, that trade secret um, uh, papyrus. So, yeah, you turn to, well, like, what can I do? What are some other organic sources I can source to turn into uh, something that I can write on? Right. Now, on top of this, there were, there were some other benefits as well. Parchment and vellum were just more durable than papyrus. They held up better over time and, and held up against wear and tear better. Uh, but finally, there were aesthetic and practical reasons parchment worked better than papyrus. One, it was easier to write on without the facially perpendicular fibers of the plant matter. Once you had written on it, also the text stood out more clearly from, from the background than it did on papyrus. And to some extent, parchment actually allowed scribes to erase mistakes or other unwanted writing more easily than than papyrus did hmm. i mean by virtue of it being just more durable for starters because we have to remember that uh, i think we went into this when we talked about our uh, on our invention episode about the pencil and the eraser like erasing uh, is uh, is often a um uh, a matter of taking away from the, the material upon which you have written. Mm -hmm. And so if you're already dealing with fragile papyrus, there's, there's just less you can do without destroying the, the paper. Totally. Uh, so, so by about the 4th century CE, parchment had replaced papyrus for most written documents in Europe, Africa, and the Middle East. And so that's going to play a very important part in shaping the physical evolution of the book, especially once we start talking about the form wars of scroll versus codex. Uh, but there's something else we need to get into, I guess, at the beginning of the next episode. I, I think we're running out of time for today. But parallel to the papyrus and parchment industries being established in those regions in the West, 
Eastward in China, written documents had found a home on a totally different writing material, and this would be paper. So maybe in the next episode, we should start off by looking at the paper industry. Absolutely. So uh, definitely uh, join us next time as we continue this look at the history of the codex, uh, the history of paper, the history of writing itself, all kind of bound up into, a, a, well, not a single volume, multiple <laughs> volumes. You can think of each each episode of the show as a volume, right? Um, uh, so join us next time. In the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, uh, you know exactly where to find us. You can find us uh, wherever you get your podcasts. And what can you do to support us? Well, you can rate, you can review, you can subscribe. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.